Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. This has been a really wonderfully full Women's History Month, and today is our final Friday, and we are going to be bringing you the audio from a virtual interview with the director and artistic uh, director of the play, Hieroglyph, as well as Marco Hall is also the artistic director, the new artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, the first uh, woman artistic director in the history of this theater. And I want to read you a little bit about Hieroglyph. This play, Hieroglyph, by Erica Dickerson Despenza, directed by Margot Hall, opened for on-demand video March 13th, and it continues through next weekend, April 3rd. And it is a collaboration between Lorraine Hasbury Theater and the San Francisco Playhouse. And this, uh, this work, which is magnificent, um it is uh wow it's like i said it's it's, it's really really awesome um san francisco playhouse artistic director bill english producing director uh susie uh damilano and lorraine hasbury theater artistic director marco hall executive director stephanie uh schaffner uh again present this co-production of the new play hieroglyph by erica Dickerson Dispenza. The cast features Jamila Cross, Safia Fredericks, uh, Carrie L. Moyer, and Anna Marie Sharp. Um, and uh, this uh, work, directed by Margot Hall, marks the Lorraine Hansby Theater's first stage production since COVID 19 pandemic began a year ago. And it's the first production that Margot, again, has directed for the company since taking the helm in September 2020. And Hieroglyph, fully produced and filmed on stage at San Francisco Playhouse, is presented as an on-demand video stream uh, through April 3rd. And, uh, And the way that patrons support the organization of their choice is by purchasing tickets, which are modest $15 through $100 <laughs> from Lorraine Hansberry Theater at lhtsf.org or from San Francisco Playhouse at sfplayhouse.org. The compelling drama Hieroglyph follows 13-year-old Davis involuntarily displaced in Chicago two months post-Katrina where she wrestles with the cultural landscape of a new city and school community while secretly coping with the PTSD of an assault at the Superdome. With her mother still in New Orleans committed to the fight for black land ownership and her father committed to starting a new life in the Midwest, divorce threatens to further separate the family already torn apart. Will Davis be left hanging in the balance? Hieroglyph traverses the intersection of environmental racism sexual violence and displacement, examining the psychological effects of a state-sanctioned man-made disaster on the most vulnerable members of Katrina. 
or of the Katrina diaspora. This work is a part of award-winning playwright Dickerson Dispenza's planned 10-play Katrina cycle of plays focused on the effects of Hurricane Katrina in and beyond New Orleans. Now, you know that this this person, uh, Wanda Sabir, is from New Orleans and interested in all things New Orleans and specifically in this disaster, um, I think, 16 years ago, this August 29th. Um, the playwright Erica Dickerson Dispenza is a black feminist poet playwright, cultural worker, educator, and grassroots organizer from Chicago, Illinois. And she is one of America's most in-demand rising playwrights. Her recognition includes um, quite a bit, and you can read it in the program, because <laughs> I want to get you right to this um, interview with, with Margot Hall. She she is just a phenomenal director, and the play is riveting. You probably want to see it a couple of times, so don't wait till the last moment to see it, because you can you know, definitely go back and, and see the work. Going to, without further ado... Uh, play this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, check out wandaspicks.com for other activities and things you can do this this for the rest of the month. And and then when April rolls around, um, there will be a lot of lot of activities because April is, I think it's Jazz Heritage Month as well as National Poetry Month. There was a week, and I think now it's a month. <laughs> and um, the Museum of the African Diaspora always has really, really great programming. Um, Nia McAllister has a wonderful series on Thursdays at 6, poetry every Thursday. And we're going to try to get some poetry happening um, uh, like we did last year. We had poetry every month because um, we felt that in a, in a pandemic Poetry is something that everybody needs, and without a pandemic, we're still in the pandemic. Poetry is still something everyone needs, and the poets are writing. Everyone's writing and doing lots of art. So without further ado, here is Margot Hall talking about being artistic director of Lorraine Hansberry Theater, what her plans are, as well as this marvelous production, Hieroglyph, that's up presently through April 3rd. We are here. <laughs> hey. Okay. Hi, Marco. So I'm so happy you were able to fit us into your busy schedule. You know, you got a 
Got a production opening, uh, Lorraine Hansberry Theater in collaboration with longtime friend San Francisco Playhouse. And yes. you are artistic director at QIT. And with the community teaching classes at UC Berkeley, you said? Yeah. Uh, You're my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read, read your bio from the website, uh, the Lorraine Hansberry hey. Theater website. And uh, and just just tell you how how honored I am to have known you and and been able to experience your wonderful artistic trajectory over the past thirty years. I think I was there. Yeah, in the beginning. we go way back. We go way back, Wanda. Yeah. Yes, we do. And thank right. you for always <laughs> being there and supporting everything. Yeah. So you are an award-winning actor, director, playwright, and educator. You have been leading a leading presence in national and local theater communities for more than 30 years, as we already mentioned. You are the first female artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, named for the trailblazing black female playwright of Raisin in the Sun. You take the helm at a moment when, where artists of color demand representation and change in the American theater. With a career dedicated to bringing the stories of people of color to life, you are committed to creating a safe space for fostering black artists, particularly black female and non-binary people of color. You are also committed to, um, you're also committed to, um, to creating a theater space for artists that are uh, underrepresented, as well as increasing society's exposure to diverse perspectives, and and you have, gosh, I remember you know watching um, Blind Spotting, and and there you were, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and then I was just thinking of back to you know sort of seeing you in the various roles and office books and plays, and mm-hmm. um, and then you know when you were um, in Marcus Gardley's wonderful sort of Pan-African tale. I mean, we even, we roll through, you know, Hurricane Katrina in that particular story. Mm-hmm. And you're mm-hmm. a goddess, you know? And, and you <laughs> stick with the family. Like, you become a human being because you're so committed to seeing this family, you know, come to safety. Like, you mm-hmm. like you would give up. And, and you didn't like being a human being at all because it was so different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had you, to get, you had to get but old. <laughs> Right, exactly, and you were like, you know, you were the goddess of beauty, and it's like, yeah, yeah, right. you know. like I can't, I can't <laughs> age. What are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, yeah, and then that wonderful play that you did, um, where you you wrote it for your family, and you sort of told mm-hmm. your story, and Marcus uh, mm-hmm. Shelby did the music. It was so yeah. wonderful, and yeah. you know, going yeah. with you to your father, your mother's house, where in the basement you met everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. And and then now, you know, wow. You know, really people really need to pay attention because thirty years can go like and you you don't even realize that it's half. I mean, you're like one of the founding member, you know, directors uh of the theater, um, Campo Santo and Campo, Campo Santo. Santo, like, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I see. So now I'm a venue that you um are founded of. Well, anyway, 
Are you sitting here with me? Um, yeah. You know, um, you're not here at the moment, and that's a debut coming up on Saturday. So, so tell me about, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about your position, you know, as I yeah. get the director, and Lorraine is getting ready to have a birthday in, you know, May 19th. And that's right, okay, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 40 years. I mean, you know, I've always had a relationship with Lorraine Hansberry Theater as an actor or a director over the many years. And um, and then I've been approached before about becoming the artistic director because for the last maybe six years, they've had interim directors uh, after Stephen Anthony Jones, you know, stepped away. And, uh, but I didn't think I was ready, you know, at that time, I, I was, have a great freelance career and I was teaching and I just wasn't sure that I would be able to, you know, do the, dedicate myself to that position at that time. And I was enjoying myself, just kind of doing whatever I wanted to do. So, uh, when everything happened with, the pandemic and then the death of George Floyd and a lot of artists started coming forward about their issues around um, anti-blackness in these predominantly white institutions. Um, And then we had the We See You movement happening in uh, New York and other various movements throughout the country around, you know, these issues of anti-blackness and systemic racism within our artistic community. And and I thought about what theaters are going to suffer the most because of this pandemic. And it would be culturally specific institutions because they don't necessarily get the funding that a lot of these predominantly white institutions get. And I was really concerned about Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And I kind of just offered my service as a volunteer to say, how can I help? What can I do? Um, and I also started a fund um, black, to fund black theaters across the United States. And I started a GoFundMe uh, with Aldo Billingsley and a few other folks. And we actually raised $143,000 that we were able to give to about 10 black, institu- you know, black theater companies um, to help them get through this uh, pandemic. And then I had a meeting with Stephanie and a group of us, me, Cleavon, and Aldo, uh, not Aldo, um, Daryl V. Jones, who was the artistic director at the time. And we kind of came together and said, what can we do to help Lorraine Hansberry Theater mm-hmm. and uh, as a volunteer? And then, you know, we just started talking and, and Stephanie said, you know, would you like to take a walk? <laughs> and talk to me about your thoughts on the Ray Hansberry Theater. And at the time, Daryl B. Jones was uh, completing his time because he was going to be there for uh, like three more months at that time. So they were actively searching for an artistic director. So I went for a walk with Stephanie, and next thing you know, we were talking about what we were going to do for the theater, and she kind of said, you think you want to come on board? And I said, yeah, I think it's about that time. So um, after our hike, uh, we came together, and I decided that it was time because I felt like I had a 
a moment of clarity during all this confusion as to where my alliance needed to be. And I knew that I needed to be with a black institution and to spend less of my energy trying to work with predominantly white institutions and their issues around race and uh, them trying to get their selves together. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go over here and make a safe space for the artists so that they don't have to deal with these issues that are coming up with these other theaters. Um, and so that has basically been my dedication to this position is creating that safe space, trying really hard to create a nurturing ground for new artists to um, make a space where our black and brown folks feel welcome and uh, feel like their work can blossom without censorship or trying to please a white audience. That's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, I remember um, the uh, the Juneteenth initiative last year. Um, mm-hmm. That um, you know that play and and that yeah. initiative. That's really wonderful. One hundred and forty three thousand dollars. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Can do you remember? Can you share those those theaters that you were able to um, assist with those funds so that they could continue? Because um, I know um, the black theaters, a lot of them you know, that existed in the past, um, we don't have as many anymore. Yeah, and this was, um, you know, had nationwide. So um, I don't know if I can remember all of them. Uh, but, you know, we yeah. we were able to fund, like, African American Shakes, um, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, even okay. though because I started that fund before I became artistic director. But we recused ourselves so that we had no uh, say in if Lorraine Hansberry Theater would get the money or not. Um, also, um, certain, uh, uh, wow, I would have to give you the list. I need to post that on okay. Facebook. Uh, yeah, but it yeah, was, you know, yeah. theaters uh, in New York, theaters in Minnesota. Um, it wasn't just local. It was whoever applied. I mean, we, we, it was interesting because we thought we would get a lot of people to apply, but we only had maybe, what, 20 applications? And we made the applications really simple. Like, you just had to say you're a theater company, you're culturally specific to black theater, and you have done a production in the last three years. I mean, it was a very simple application. And I think out of the the eight, 19 applications we had, we funded like 15 people. So almost everyone who applied got, got money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, when August Wilson um, sort of did that call you know, to black theater and, and, you know, sort of definitively around, around who black theater is and, um, and, and what that means and, and how, uh, you know, as, as a collective, <clears throat> you know, there were certain responsibilities connected to that. And, uh, and then I remember um, Idris Akamore and Rodessa Jones sort of mm-hmm. taking that and kind of like um, making it, uh, in institutionalizing it um, in, mm-hmm. in their work at Cultural Odyssey. And, um, and of course, you know about all that because you were here. Um, but I just yeah, to I mean, those are the pioneers. About, 
who laid the laid the groundwork, you know, for the work I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yes, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about theater, you know, the form, and and, and black storytelling, and, and and your entree into into this particular um, uh, medium, genre, field, uh, because I think you've been performing all your life. I know yeah. art has been a part of your life since you grew up in it. Like it's a part of the the air that you you know were breathing <laughs> when you first you know came home from the hospital. Unless you were born yeah. at home, and then you know, like you didn't have to go to like right there in the crib. So yeah, you come by it, you know, like really organically, mm-hmm. and one can see that in the various that you show up, you know, as director, as actress, you know, um, as as producer, as writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've always been a performer. Uh, I was in uh, dance school at the age of five. And I grew up in a, the fabulous place of Detroit, Michigan, um, in this little town called Highland Park, which is right inside Detroit. And um, my mom was really, really keen on having her daughters, I have two sisters, involved in the arts from a very young age. So, like, we went to Tony School of Dance, which was a black dance uh, school in Detroit when I was five. So it was like my sister, I was five, my other sister was nine, and my other sister was 12, and we were all in this dance school, and um, and I was performing plays at a very young age, and I was, my very first theater I performed in was the Langston Hughes Theater. So I've known, you know, Lorraine Hansberry, Alice Childers, Langston Hughes, uh, all of these people were a part of my life growing up. Um, and I was fortunate enough that um, my upbringing was very was based in a lot of Black cultural studies. And uh, Bessie Smith, I remember my first report I did in middle school was on Bessie Smith. <laughs> so I, I was always intrigued by Black artists and um, in all realms of art, from uh, painters to dancers uh, to singers Um, and then my mom remarried my stepfather when I was an adolescent around nine or ten who worked with Motown and so then I got a whole nother taste of these artists who uh, became part of my uh, extended family Uh, people like Aretha Franklin he wrote and arranged some of her stuff and uh, the Supremes, he was the artist, um, he was the, um, um, I think, Margo, <laughs> uh, he was the arranger and conductor for the Supremes when I was growing up. So I had a chance to actually perform with them when I was a little girl. And But all of these people were like family. They were just really hardworking artists, you know, who were very talented but worked really hard. Um, to create this Motown sound. Uh, so I was always surrounded by art and um, and not just singers and dancers, but actors and painters. Um, and we had a, in our basement, that's where everyone would gather. And my dad had a 15-piece orchestra called the New Breed Bebop Society. And a lot of artists came out of Detroit from that 
training ground and have gone on to do amazing things. So, uh, so it was a wonderful time, you know, but I also grew up in Detroit and it was, it was a tough time, you know, there was crime and there were all these other things that were going on, but at the same time, we were persevering uh, as black folks in my neighborhood and other neighborhoods and using art and culture to keep us grounded and to keep us focused. So I really applaud my, my family for that and for their support. I mean, I actually went to school for two years to be a dentist because my mom wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> and, I, and I did it for two years, and then I said, no, I want to be an artist. So I, I left University of Michigan, and I went to school in New York, and, and that was that. And then I just continued my career from there and ended up in the Bay in the 90s um, and then got hooked up with Campo Santo. And that's where most of my training ground came from here in the Bay um, and was able to create some really good work with some amazing people who I love and who I'm still connected to today um, and got some new stuff coming out with Campo Santo soon that I'm super excited about. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to share the names of, of your uh, co-collaborators, founders at Campo Santo? Yes, John San Jose, Michael Torres, and may he rest in peace, the amazing Luis Sagua. Um, and uh, we got this little gritty city company up on its feet in the 90s and just worked with amazing writers like Octavio Solis and Naomi Izuka and Jessica Hagedorn doing plays that a lot of theaters were afraid to produce. But we were brave. We, took, we were risk takers. And um, we had this little 70-seat theater at Intersection for the Arts. Um, and we worked with these young folks like Shanaka Hodge and Davi Diggs and all of these superstars that are um, tearing up the world right now. Um, and that's how I met David was through Campo Santo. Um, so when he was able to move on and do his thing, he reached back and pulled me along. So I, I appreciate that. And I don't know if you know this, Wanda, but the blind spotting is going to be a TV show now um, on stars. And so we've been filming for the last four months for the TV show. So I will be playing Nancy, his mom, again uh, in the TV show. Hopefully it will come out, I think, this summer. I'm not sure. We just finished the last episode in Oakland uh, last week or a week and a half ago. Yes. Okay. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, really nice. That's what, and Shanaka Hodge um, wrote the play <laughs> that that yes. was in. At, That's right. At uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I really liked Intersection for the Arts. Real intimate, you know. Yeah, it was a great space, <laughs> right? We had, exactly. had some good, good times. Oh, man, some really good theater. And it's so funny. I think you all would lock the door once it started. So yeah. you had to be on time, otherwise you'd have to go to the next 
the next production if there was another one. <laughs> I know, right? People would yeah. be knocking on the door. I, and yeah, like, I learned that the hard way. So smart. Nobody yeah. answers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, so why don't we talk a little bit about hieroglyphs and, and the uh, – the uh, playwright uh, Erica Dickerson Dispenza. We were speaking a little before we went live that about the story, and, and I was just saying how all stories about New Orleans and the Gulf and Hurricane Katrina like really hit me because because that's that's my home. Yeah. I'm, I'm from New Orleans, mm. and so these are my people. Wow. And and even yeah. today, you know, um, 15 years later, um, you know the what happened is still is still there. We have a lot of Katrina survivors still here in the Bay Area in California, elsewhere in yeah, the uh, yeah. United States can't go home because they rent it, and now it's too expensive. So New Orleans, those places look really different. But the echoes yeah. of the trauma and the pain, you know, people are still carrying that. Particularly, you know, you think about children that sort of like maybe didn't have words then, uh, but but now mm-hmm. they're, they're big, but they had they experienced trauma, but they had yeah coming out you know, in their behavior, in their body. And we've got yep. this beautiful little protagonist that she can't speak. She has no words, right? So why don't you tell us about the story and how you all came to, you know, be mounting it and, and the director. Sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, Bill, uh, Hieroglyph, first of all, I wanted to say that the playwright Erica Dickerson Dispensa is an incredible young person um and it's been a pleasure she's been here working on she's been with us the whole process in our zoom rehearsals as well as when we went into the theater but i can talk more about that um but uh the play itself a lot of the things that you were saying uh deals with the displacement of families after hurricane katrina and the young girl davis 14 year old um, black girl whose family was displaced and placed in Chicago, uh, they spent four days in the Superdome after the hurricane. And unfortunately, during that time in the Superdome, Davis experienced some trauma. Uh, there was a lot going on in that space. And when you look back and you read the articles and you see the documentaries, um, it still does not tell all of the tales. Uh, of what went down. And I think a lot of the stories of abuse and things like that were never spoken of. And so Erica is bringing that to light and talking specifically about the abuse of young black women um, and, and just the abuse on black bodies and how it gets swept under the rug because people don't think it's important. Um, And so she is, talking about that in this play through the character of Davis and allowing Davis to express her trauma in her artwork. And so her teacher notices how she is kind of doing this peculiar type of art where she is um, showing bits and pieces of something. Uh, And the audience is aware from very early on that Davis was uh, abused in the Superdome. So it's more about us watching navigate through that and try to help Davis through this journey. Um, 
Erica talks a lot about how she was influenced by Toni Morrison. And Toni Morrison is not always interested in plot and all of that. Toni Morrison will tell you right off the top who's dead, who's not, who killed them, right? And then she goes into the journey of the story. Just like in jazz, at the top of the, this, well, the play we did, but at the top of the story, you see the wife stabbing the girl who's in the casket, who was the woman who was having an affair with her husband. You know right away the story, right? So it's not about the audience trying to see the reveal, um, which is, uh, I really appreciate that about her work. And again, influenced by Toni Morrison. So uh, eventually it all comes out and Davis is supported by her family uh, and the village kind of comes together to save Davis. And I think that's important for the play because it offers hope because it is a very intense play, you know, and I say trigger warning, um, it does deal with um, some really strong issues around uh, rape and abuse. So, uh, but we have to tell those stories, right? Because we have to highlight what is happening to our young black girls um, from sex trafficking to murder, as in Breonna Taylor, right? And so if nobody else is going to talk about it, we have to talk about it. And it is uncomfortable, but it's bringing these stories to life. And the, um, Erica was influenced by a story of a young girl named Shatoya Curry. Uh, Erica, when she left New Orleans, she was also placed in Chicago. So she grew up most of her life in Chicago. And when she was a young girl, she heard a story about uh, Shatoya Curry, who was a girl who was uh, raped and murdered in the project. And it was a really horrible story, and they found her body in the project stairwell. And that stuck with Erica. Um, and uh, you'll see in the play, one of the characters mentions Shatoya Curry and that story, and that um, was also part of the influence of why Erica is writing this play about young David. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Um, let me talk a little bit, um, I don't think it'll give away anything, about the relationship that um, Davis has with her father. I read a little bit of, of the play, and it's uh, yeah, I think it's, it's it's a beautiful relationship, you know. Like you don't you don't get a chance to witness girls, children, and their father relationship mm -hmm. um, enough. You know, yeah, black girls and black fathers, you know, that are loving mm -hmm. and nurturing, and and you can talk to the dad, and you know, like like it should be like normal, you know, kind of like normal. Yeah, life it that. is normal. And they just don't show that. Know, they <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, you know, you have that kind of relationship with your stepdad, right? So Yeah, I yeah. yeah. So um, it's but you know, in the play, what's interesting about Davis's relationship with her father, whose name is Ernest, uh there is it's tough for them because Davis's mother is not there. So another part of the play is that Davis's mom, she stays in New Orleans to kind of fight for their property. Um, when they're displaced and put into Chicago, and put in Chicago, so Davis and her father are trying to navigate kind of a new relationship where he is 
struggling to raise a 14-year-old girl that um, was mostly just had a deeper relationship with her mother, right? So, uh, and then the idea that she would have to go to him and talk about this abuse um, is really difficult for David. And she doesn't have her mother there to talk to. Um, and you get a little sense of that in the conversations where the phone calls that the father has with the mother, that the mother has chosen not to be with them right now. So they're kind of separated. Um, so you do see the blossoming of this relationship with the young girl and her father um, and a very tender moment by the end of the play um, of them really coming together. Uh, so, so yeah, it does show that a caring father who's trying to figure out how to be a dad under these circumstances in this whole new place with a 14-year-old uh, and how he's navigating that. And I just wanted to give a shout-out to the cast because it's amazing cast. Kyrie Moore is playing the father. Sophia Fredericks is playing the teacher. The lovely Jamela Cross is playing Davis. And then a newcomer, Anna Marie Sharp, who is actually one of my students at UC Berkeley, is playing Leah. So it's very exciting that I get to bring one of my students into the professional workplace, right? Um, which is also a big part of my life is mentorship, mentorship, working with these young folks, giving them hope, giving them focus, and allowing any opportunity I have to reach back and bring someone forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the play is um... – it's going to be an on-demand video streaming March 13th through April 3rd of uh, this year, and um, and people can get tickets, um, uh, $15 to $100, from the Lorraine Hansberry Theater from the website um, lhtsf.org or mm -hmm. San Francisco Playhouse, sfplayhouse.org. So how was the whole um, process of, performance to, um, <laughs> to virtual platform, like how, how, did you, how did that work? Oh. Yeah, it's a crazy process. Um, so we rehearsed over Zoom for three weeks, just digging into the play, um, and then we went into the theater to film the play. So very rigorous process for the actors because we basically had to, what we call block the play, stage it on Zoom uh, right before we went to the theater. So we set up um, a video of the theater so they could see the space that they were going into, see all the furniture, see all the places that they would be able to move through and navigate to tell the story. So we blocked it over Zoom, went through the script, said, you cross here, you go to the table here, so that when we got into the theater itself, we only had two days of rehearsal in the space where they could move around and block everything. And then we filmed it for three days. Um, and we were able to film uh, four runs of the show. Now we had to follow COVID protocols. We all had to get tested, I think, up to four times 
two times before we even came to the space. No, three times before we came to the space. And then the day we got there, we had to do a test that we mailed off to get results the next day. Uh, so it was a lot of intense protocols. Um, only the actors could be on the stage with the crew. And that was hard for me because I like being on the stage and moving stuff around. Uh, but because uh, just once I went off the stage, I couldn't get back on because then I was interacting with crew. I mean, I was interacting with production, you know, sound, lights, everything like that. And so um, it was, I had to be like in the audience, which was good. It was fine. It all worked out. Uh, but those actors had to just come into that space, learn everything really quick, and then the pressure of, okay, and action, because it's a film, right? So, uh, and we ran the play. It's not like we stop and go and take this shot and film that again. So they had to kind of go through the play. Um, and now we're in post and putting all the pieces together, making sure, oh, that shot, and how do we fix this? We have in the play intimacy, right? There are two actors in the play that um, have to physically touch each other. And that was a big deal with the union because they said, well, we don't know about that. I mean, how do you do that during COVID? So we had to put the actors up in a hotel uh, for the the whole time so that they were quarantined outside of the other actors because those two actors had to be intimate with each other. So they were actually quarantined in a hotel, which was across the street from the theater. And the only thing they could do was stay in their hotel, go to the theater, go back to their hotel. Food had to be delivered, everything. Um, and so that happened. And, and luckily, everything worked out. And again, we were constantly getting uh, the COVID test and all of that protocol because we really wanted, I know, I know for me personally, I really wanted to try to recreate a theatrical experience as much as I could um, and not do this play over Zoom. Um, I feel like it was kind of the best way to do the play. And I think there's still kind of quirky things that happen. Sometimes the filming is not exactly right. Uh, but I do think that it gives the audience a real experience of witnessing something that is a play. And it still has cinematic value as well, because there were certain things we could do and make them more cinematic, because we were using three cameras to film this whole play. So I think it, um, it should be a wonderful experience to watch, not only to see this phenomenal play, but to see these actors and to see how you can start to combine the elements of film and, and a play together to create um, a theatrical experience. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people think. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So um, with regards to your relationship, Lorraine Hansberry Theater's relationship with San Francisco Playhouse, um, it, it, it's gone. It, it's, it's a relationship that um, has been uh, in existence for a minute. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. And then between the two theaters, you know, producing this play, Hieroglyph, um, to get, you know, together, um, 
did Lorraine Hansberry Theater already have the filming uh, uh, expertise um, as well, or the San Francisco Playhouse, or did you mm -hmm. both bring um, that particular experience to the table and then collaborated around the production? How, how did that work out? Yeah, so so talking about the history with SF Playhouse and Lorraine Hansberry Theater, the first play I ever directed for SF Playhouse, which was called The Story, uh, was a co-production with Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And um, and then there were a couple other co-productions with LHT. It may have been four or five altogether. So, uh, so that relationship has been going on. And when Bill came to me with the play Hieroglyph, he was really excited about this play. And he was like, you're the one who has to direct it. And I said, well, this is my new thing. This is my thing. If anyone wants to co wants me to direct, it is a co-production with Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, and so whatever resources you have, we will come together with whatever resources we have uh, as a company. You have the space, and you have been filming before. So SF Playhouse did a filmed version of the play Art. And then they also recently did Songs for a New World, which was kind of a musical um, where they used local artists. And that was also filmed on stage. So it was a, a great opportunity to film Hieroglyph. But uh, one of the things that I'm pretty clear on is if I'm going to give my time to another theater, it has to be in conjunction with Lorraine Hansberry Theater and co-produced because we need to get um, as much of the press as anyone else because I am the artistic director of the Ring Hansberry Theater. So, uh, and Bill and I have worked together on so many projects. I mean, I directed for SS Playhouse outside of Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, I've acted in plays there. And so we have a longstanding relationship since the story. Um, and at one point, mm -hmm. the Rain Hansberry Theater was in that same space where SF Playhouse is today. I know. So, uh, I know. so yeah. to be in that space is it's important to me. <laughs> and uh, so to do this play in that space with this co-production, I think, is just continuing that relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I feel the same way when I'm in that space. I, I see Clinton and I see Stanley mm -hmm. at the reception when Lorraine Hansberry there is like, we finally have a new home, right? I know. And, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Stephen was there and, I, and we did, I directed this play Rejoice and we had a season there, you know. Um, and unfortunately, yeah. we couldn't hold on to it, but we'll be back. Don't worry, right. we're going to get our own space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was reading that that's one of um one of you know, you have that you have a list and that's on your list. Um, yeah. With, you know, Lorraine Hansberry having its own space. Mhm. Mm yeah. What else is on your list? What else is on my list? Okay. So, um I have a lot uh, an initiative that I'm working on which is a mentorship initiative. One of the first few things I want to do is to have a three-year, uh, maybe one to three years, we're still working out timing of that, of mentorship between an emerging playwright and an established playwright, black 
playwright and um, have them work on a project over a three-year period. And basically, I'm really interested in the opportunity of having the black female established playwright talk about what it has been for them. You know, people like Dominique Marceau, Katori Hall, these people, Lynn Nottage, that have had to navigate this world and get their work out there and work with emerging playwrights. Some of the, and they don't necessarily have to be young emerging playwrights, but three emerging playwrights who um, are in need of this mentorship. And hopefully it will be more than just an exchange of how to write a play. It'll be more about how to survive as a black female playwright in this industry. And I'm hoping that uh, we would be able to meet once a year for an annual um, coming together at a black owned space um, and just spend some retreat time together um, and really uh, learn from each other on many different levels. And also some, if you got some young folks with some older folks, there are some intergenerational learning, right? What can they teach us? Uh, and just trying to create this uh, initiative so that it continues over the years. So then you have those mentees, they become the mentors. And in the meantime, you're creating work, right? And we are committed to producing these plays that come out of this um, mentorship on our stage at Lorraine Hansberry Theater. But that, you know, we got to raise a lot of money for that. <laughs> But that's that's one of my initiatives. Sure. Yeah, because, you know, I talk a lot about uh, I, I really want T to be um, more than just a, uh, an institution that produces plays. Um, I really want a the training ground uh, uh, opportunity to serve a broader community of black artists, uh, possibly have a gallery, um, and just expand our notion of what a cultural institution can be um, and um, and create that space and also produce great shows. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think Lorraine Hansberry Theater has commissioned work in the past, and I remember when um, August Wilson was working on on the, uh, the centennial, um, you know, 10-play cycle, sometimes um, they would be workshops at Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, seven guitars and um, uh, oh, and seven guitars and and the one about the taxi. Um, Jitney. Jitney, Jitney, yes. Mm-hmm. And August Wilson actually came through. Wow, <laughs> and, that's and the fantastic. play. And, and, yeah, yeah, because I went to see seven guitars twice. And, mm-hmm. and, and and one time, the actor was on 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 script because August Wilson had just changed something. Yeah. Like, and he, you know, like right at that moment, I'm like, whoa, this is so exciting. Yeah, that's and fantastic. and you know, yeah. and then it was like it was free. It was open to the community. Like, mm-hmm. and August Wilson was on the stage and just going mm-hmm. back and forth. I mean, it was just it's similar to like Ashley Davis and Ruby D. You know. Mm-hmm. If they were in the area and, and you had just heard them talk, you know they'd be out in the in the in the lobby, and you was like, mm-hmm. "Wow, that's Aussie Davis! Oh my goodness!" Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was just wondering. I know Lorraine Hansberry, and I'm going to let you go in, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, would have wonderful, wonderful um, program there 
will be new work, and people would submit their scripts, and then you all would select, you know, who was going to be in this particular showcase. And we see all these wonderful plays that, for the first time, you know. And I was mm-hmm. wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about, about your season um, and when is it starting and, and some of the things. Are you going to be continuing that particular um, aspect of, of, the, uh, of the theater where you would have this new work kind of showcase? Which, which is, which, you yeah, know, you know, different. Um, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting time, Wanda. I mean, we right now we're going to do Hieroglyph, and then we're going to do a radio production of Intimate Apparel because Intimate Men Nottages oh, Intimate Apparel was supposed to go up yeah. right when COVID hit, right? So we never got to do that. Yeah. So what we're thinking of doing now is reprising it in a radio play. So that will be like the next thing that's up after Hieroglyph. And then after that, you know, we're going to start to get the initiative going, hopefully. Um, And then we have to figure out, uh, because we're not sure what's going on at Burial Play. Um, And people don't know when they're going to open up their theaters. So it's kind of a tricky time. So I wouldn't say, like, we have a season planned because we got to really think deep about where we're going to show our plays, what these plays are going to mean for our communities. So we're in the process of trying to figure out just where we're going to be. And if we are going to be in a space, we probably are really interested in finding um, our, our holiday show. Uh, so trying to figure out what the, the, that's probably when we feel like we might be back in a space, of whatever space that's going to be. Uh, and so we're focusing on what, what, what do we need for our community um, during this time? And, I, you know, I, I, maybe I'm a different type of artistic director, but I really need to see what we need before I say, oh, I'm going to plan four plays for the next year. I don't know what this community needs yet. I want to see what's out there. I want to see what all of this new work that's coming out of this crazy COVID period, what does that mean? Well, how is that work going to impact the community? So I'm, I'm doing some deep thinking about what it means to have a season. Um, and, 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 and is, that, uh, is that a series of poetry? Um, over Zoom, which is the poetry of Audre Lorde and Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, Is it bringing young poets together with the older poets? Um, You know, I'm always interested in this mentorship and intergenerational learning. So it may not be a play that you see on Zoom, but um, again, thinking about what we need. And so that's what I'm exploring right now. Yeah, yeah. That's you know that which sort of really kind of um, takes us back to her. You know, this child Davis, um, she has her art. Like she can mm-hmm. put what she's feeling on the paper, on the canvas. Yeah. And and you know, art is so important. You know, theater. We see these characters, and they speak what we're feeling. You know, mm-hmm. in the audience. Well, maybe we didn't have words for it, but we see ourselves in that character mm-hmm. or in right. that story. And you mm-hmm. spoke about safety, you know, um, when you were talking about you know, safety where you don't have to explain because the people mm-hmm. around you know the, they're, they're, they're your people. 
So you don't have to like start with the introductory remarks so we we're in the same space, we know each other, we know the history because we're black people. So you can think about right. that stuff and just get to it. Get to yeah, the work. So thinking about art as a get to the work, right, right. So mm-hmm. you know, sort of like right now just listening and watching and mm-hmm. and you know, being open to, you know, approach. Like what you know, like you say, you know, we just came through a whole year of mm-hmm. of being distanced and and being distanced sometimes in spaces where we were not we had to be careful because we weren't safe. Mm-hmm. Or distance yeah. and you know, and having your your basic needs in peril, like housing. Mm-hmm. Like how many people lost their housing? How many people I know. You know um, are you know, are yeah, yeah, like housing instability, food. Having to yeah. work jobs that put you in danger every single day you go to That's work. right. That's right. How many people lost yeah. their family members, lost lives? I mean, I think we want to really think about community when mm-hmm. we come back, whatever that means. But it, it, mm-hmm. it, it's going to be some coming together on a, on a whole different level, I feel, um, where we can support each other with art and, like you say, with other resources and trying to figure out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, your plan as it unfolds, and, and yeah. hopefully, you know, the broader community to to maybe, um, you know, be like a fishbowl. We could be outside holding you all as you all talk, you know, in yes, these please. sessions. So we could like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those, um, you know, don't want to miss hieroglyphs. Um, Erica Dickerson, uh, the census play directed by Margot Hall, uh, collaboration between Lorraine Hansberry Theater and San Francisco Playhouse. Um, it's going to be a movie uh, streaming from March 13th, which is Saturday through April 3rd, and you can um, uh, purchase tickets through Lorraine Hansberry Theater at their website lhtsf.org or San Francisco Playhouse's uh, website sfplayhouse.org, and tickets are. Fifteen to one hundred dollars, and and your um, your various initiatives. If people want to um, contribute and things like that, um, can they reach you through the Rain Hansberry Theater? Yes, if you go to lhtsf.org, there's a big donate button <laughs> right there on the website, um, and we appreciate whatever <laughs> you can give. Uh, yeah, it 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 is definitely um, important to fund uh, the black institutions and any theaters that are culturally specific because normally they don't necessarily have all the legacy funds that a lot of the predominantly white institutions have. And one of the things about creating a safe space for our artists to come home to, we still have to compete financially with these larger spaces or just with spaces um, that are have the same capacity as we do, but they just have more funding. So, I don't want to be a theater that says, oh, bring your work here, but we can't pay you as much, but you come to the black theater. No, I want to be able to pay, if not the same, more. Um, And that's why the funding is important so that we can compete and we can create not only a safe environment, but, um, you know, uh, an environment where a person has paid their work. Well, thank you again for joining us, Margot, and um, looking Welcome, forward to seeing you in blind spotting on stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be fun. That's going to be yeah. fun. 
And, um, yeah, definitely um, love to have you again um, to come and participate with us and let us know how things are going and other ways that community can be supportive of Lorraine Hansberry, you know, our premier African-American theater um, yeah. Here in the Bay Area. Thanks, Wanda. Thank you for always supporting me and the whole community, always being our advocate. Um, we can't do this without you. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You take good care. Okay. Bye now. Peace and blessings. Thank you. Bye. So that was, that was Margot Hall and, uh, going to play a musical selection and uh and we might we might end a little bit early but I'm going to play um Amakela Gaston and <laughs> one one of my favorites uh Hambong Hambone Mm, go Queen Linda Hambone, hambone away, man Round the corner and back again mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where your wife oh, yeah. In the kitchen cooking rice Hambone, hambone, hambone Give me hambone Give me some hambone Well now, hambone, hambone Put them on your shoulder mm-hmm. If you get a pretty girl, I'll show you how to hold it mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where you been All around the world and back again Hambone, hambone, hambone
But when he come down and broke that collar, I didn't know they had some collars with a hand on him. Hand on had to see. Dad, I got bigger when Mama got seen. Since my dad, I love to eat. I'ma buy him some from a cold street. And if those shrimps don't taste you good, I'm buying them from a cold street. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Broadcast uh, another interview that was first conducted virtually uh, on Facebook, Wanda Sabir. And this particular conversation was with uh, Sarah Crowell um, about dance dance in revolting times, Harriet's Gun, which was. I think it was last week and the week before uh, it was broadcast through Dance Mission. And it's available through the whole month uh, presently and through the month of April on demand. It's free. And so if you missed uh, Harry's Gun, uh, Dance in Revolting Times, it was simply marvelous. And it honors the 30th anniversary of the Rodney King beating, which is this year. You certainly need to put that at the top of your to-do list. You don't want to let April run out, which hasn't started yet, um, without 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 watching both of these powerful weekends of performance and conversation with the artists, black artists. So I'm going to play this interview, and I want to thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Pick. See you in April. Happy spring, you know, keep, you know, keep doing those things that uh, are positive and progressive and revolutionary. Yeah. You know what? I think 
I tried to do this before, and it was not the right interview. Darn. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's, that's not the right that's not the right interview. Yeah, I'm going to have to figure that out. In the meantime, <laughs> I will play something else. Oh, wow. I was thinking about uh, Rodessa Jones. I'm going to play Rodessa Jones's really wonderful conversation about her work. She, it was oh, the resurrection of she. Oh, my gosh. Such a great conversation. This goes back. Oh, it kind of works. It goes back uh, to March 28th uh, to April 7th, 2013 at Brava that Rodessa did this one-woman show that highlighted her life um, and how she became she, she, you know, Queen Rodessa. And it, it was simply marvelous. And I think, I think we'll start with her reflection on Aretha Franklin when um, when Queen Aretha was making her ascension, and then we'll just slip right into uh, Rodessa Jones on the resurrection of she. I will definitely play the um, the Sarah Crowell um, interview when I upload upload the right one, but that is not the right one. I mean, I love that song, you know, um, Bomb and Juliet, but this is not the right song. So. Uh, See you next week. Um, Next week, next Friday is good Friday, and the Resurrection Day is that weekend. So um, for those who are fasting and reflecting on atonement, um, you know, keep, keep it going. Keep it going. That's how we live the right life. That's how we live the good life, one that is constantly being reviewed. Good morning, Wanda. This is Rodessa Jones, co-director of Cultural Odyssey and the artistic director and founder of the Medea Project Theater for Incarcerated Women. And uh, as you requested, I'd like to leave a statement about the Queen Mother of Gospel and Soul, Aretha Franklin. Where do I begin? Aretha Franklin literally kissed me, so to speak, in my life as a young African-American girl who uh, was a woman before I was a was a mother, pardon me, before I was a woman, and uh, had a baby at the age of 16. And it was, um, I Say a Little Prayer for You, was the song that uh, touched me deeply listening to Aretha sing. I know it's a love song, but for, for me as a young 17-year-old with a year-old baby, uh, it was like Aretha was promising me that everything was going to be all right. I say a little prayer for you. And the whole idea that somewhere this beautiful black woman was getting up and putting on her makeup and running for the bus and somehow the, metaphorically she was saying, look, little colored girl, you know, uh, it's going to be all right. You know, it's all just around the corner. And then uh, the other song is uh, Ain't No Way. As I got older as a woman, you know, just trying to make it clear that, uh, yeah, you know, um, how can I love you if you don't let me? Which we know that story. And last but not least is don't play that song for me. It brings back such memories. And uh, I was only 17, 
How could you be so mean? And it was Aretha who put it all into music, made it um, made it parade around as songs when it was really prayers, and uh, made the heavens open up and bless and keep her. And now that she is back into light, hopefully, she shines brightly for all of us. Be well, my sisters, this morning, and know that the Queen Mother has simply ascended, but she has not left us. Thank you very much. Have a good day. This is Rodessa Jones. Bye-bye. So I'm speaking to Miss Rodessa Jones about the resurrection of she, and it's directed and the music is by uh, Idris Akamur, her longtime um, collaborator, and uh, Hamilton College is presenting this. Um, tell me about the Hamilton College presentation. Um, they That was the first place it was presented? Yeah, it was a... Uh, we wanted to see if it had legs, uh, just because I was scheduled to be there to do some work in a prison there. Oh. That, that uh, strangely enough, that fell apart for them. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get clearance. You know, San Francisco, California is a very different place for for us. Even the prisons, although they're 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 large uh, warehousing and it's a money making factor. But for me, anyways, I cut my tooth in California. On, Working in prisons and and in other places, they're just prisons are just hard to get into. You know. So. Yeah, I tried. Um, yeah. Lot of, yeah, it's really hard. You can't even you can only you can even get in the like the lobby. You're you're, out, you're outside talking to them and they're saying no, you can't come in. And that's South Africa, Madagascar, mm. and Senegal. Yeah, those are uh, you know I. Uh, my some of my African uh, friends and associates they kind of get miffed, but I always I just end my my salutations and everything with them with just pray for Africa because mm-hmm. um, you know it's just so the deal is going down and it's always so dark in a lot of ways and you know and uh, it just South Africa I was very impressed because of the the program that they embraced. I mean, I was surprised because I, I thought I was going to go and it was going to be the same, same old, same old, same old. But, no, I actually have been working there now for almost a decade. And mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I stayed down the street from you. I couldn't afford where you all stay. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that was uh, thanks, thanks to the, thanks to the, um, the Rockefeller Foundation, actually. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nice neighborhood. It doesn't feel like Africa at all. I mean, there's a 7th Street. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, you know, but you, uh, but I was uh, I just taught, uh, I was just at Brown uh, this past weekend. I did a, a major creative performance, creative survival workshop with students mm. at Brown. Mm-hmm. And I had a young lady from Kenya, and um, she was talking about how, Africa is looking more and more like that. Wherever there's any affluence, it's like those nice neighborhoods that are all locked down, though. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you cannot get, you you know, you, you living in those neighborhoods. It's like you gotta have a key to do this. You gotta have a key to do that mm-hmm. because you know the 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 poor is the poor is pounding at the door, you know, and uh, and the rich are getting richer, and they're not. Uh, then they don't look like black Africa, you know, mm-hmm. basically. So the guy that we that owns the spot that we ran, he's a white South African who who wears a mask of gentility and uh but I but I've got to know the people who work there and you know, and it's still slavery, you know, it's mm-hmm. still uh, largely slavery. One of my favorite uh, maids she quit, you know, I mean uh, you know, she she wanted to be a nurse and 
This man was not going to have her giving him hours when she could work and uh, because she was trying to go back to school and better herself. It was just insane. And uh, I've been very uh, supportive of her as well, right down to sending money every mm-hmm. few months to her and her family because she's trying to find another job. But she did get into school and uh, got some support from some organization, but the, the, she was she lost her job because she was attempting to better herself. You know, hmm. yeah, he wouldn't let her work there, and uh, because she was calling her own hours, it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, just mm-hmm. we take so much for granted, even as crazy as it is in this country, we take so much for granted about where you can go, what you can do, how you can dream. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, speaking of dreaming and telling stories, it seems as if. You know, you were born telling stories. You must have been, you know, you know, eating eating this great produce that your your migrant, um, you know, family members, you know, the Dulcinea family, you know, as you were traveling along the East Coast, you know, they were traveling on the East Coast, picking vegetables and fruits and telling stories, perhaps. Yeah. Well, you know, the storytelling really was handed down from my grandmother, mm-hmm. my mother's mother. You know. Um, uh, Early on, even before the migratory um, legacy ha- started to happen in my family, my grandmother, that's how she took care of all of us. That's how she kept us focused. And and uh, and she was just a master storyteller, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, I, I knew about Uncle Ramos long before Walt Disney, you know. Uh, Burr Rabbit, mm-hmm. uh, Burr Fox. And then my dad, my dad was also a wonderful storyteller in that, you know, he he passed on all those a lot of those, well not all of them, but a lot of the stories that Zora Neale Hurston proceeded to capture in her anthological uh, studies. Uh, he was already my dad was already telling us these stories about the talking mule and mm-hmm. um, you know, and he my father had even been to Eatonville when he was oh, a young man. Yeah, yeah. So. did did he meet Zora Neale Hurston? Was she still there? I have a feeling that uh, I have this I have this premise. Maybe it's my own storyteller, but. There is a a sad story in my family uh, that my mother shared with my brother Bill and I. Very interesting in that we were, uh, Bill was uh, presenting the last supper at Uncle Tom's Cabin. This was like back in the late 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. And we were all in the limo circling the block uh, trying to find a way to, to get out. Uh, my mom was with us. It was Bill and I. My mother started telling us the story of, how my father had killed my uncle Pat, her older sister's husband. They had been brothers, Lily. They had been so close, mm-hmm. but it was over a woman, a fancy city woman, who would sit uh, on the uh, sit on the commissary steps and share stories with these men. And uh, apparently, they both fell for this woman. And in my heart of hearts, I think it was Zoronel Hurston. Oh my! Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that both of these <laughs> men saw her and heard her, and had never uh, been in the presence of such a sparkling, free spirit ever. And mm. uh, my mother said that it was that woman in that red, uh, <laughs> that that red red tilted hat. And uh, I, I think that my father and my uncle both fancied. They were both handsome, you know. Mm-hmm. I. I don't remember a lot about my Uncle Pat. I remember a picture of him, but my father was very handsome, and I think that uh, they just got a kick out of her her presence, and she's probably a great flirt. And my Uncle Pat came around 
the morning that she left town, and he had a gun, and he wanted to kill my dad and my mother and my aunt. Cause to this day, they don't know really what happened. Hmm. But I think was either my father got to spend a little too a little more time with her than my uncle. And at any rate, my father um, killed him first. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just this blazing, crazy battle between these two black men hmm. over something that was not spoken. And, uh, hmm. and my mother said, I think it had to do with that fancy city woman that got, because she got, Lorna Hurston got on a train the same mor- morning, and I guess all the women were a tad re- relieved that I'm saying Lorna Hurston, this woman did, and left town, and then my uncle came over to kill my father. And my father apparently was was ready for him, you know, um, and uh, shot him first when he came up on the property, you know. Um, yeah. Wow, that sounds like something out of Azora now, Harrison Tale. Yes, really, mm. really. So, Amazing. Yeah, so that's... Uh, that's my Zora Neale Hurston story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why yeah. not? So um, you are bringing the resurrection of she to San Francisco uh, at the end of this month. I believe it's the 28th. Yes. And it's going to be at Brava Theater for, um, I don't know, is, is it a week or week? Two weeks. Two weeks, yeah, so people can go back and see it again. And there's a subtitle to, to this um to this piece, The Resurrection of She, and the subtitle, The Rodessa Jones Story. It's like, oh, wow, it's the Rodessa Jones story, like part one or what? Because we, well, or part three well, or four, because we've seen a lot of your stories. Well, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a return to some old material, mm. and that I, 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 with my work in Africa mm. and my work in San Francisco with the Medea Project methodologies, uh, it has been an incredible uh, eye opener. The looking at how how the the lives of South African women and the lives of uh, incarcerated women, uh, marginalized women, I guess I should say, in America are so alike. Mm-hmm. And uh, and on one level, I marvel at whatever has brought me to this place in time where I can get, I can mine stories from women. Women will share just about anything with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I decided in making the Resurrection of She that I was going to go back and examine my methodologies and could I do the same thing openly to mm-hmm. myself oh. to craft uh, my own journey, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as, a, as a woman, as an artist, as an African-American woman, as a mother, as a grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, could I chart my own course? And so that's what the Resurrection of Sheep basically is. It's like uh, looking at the way our lives are really like uh, uh, like an onion, you know, that we keep peeling back layer after layer after layer. Mm-hmm. And how many times have you died? When did you die? You know, I mean, I had a baby at 16 by a boy that I, you know, I was so innocent. He said he loved me and uh, held my hand in the moonlight and sang uh, the Beatles, When I Get Older, Losing My Hair, When I'm, 65, when I'm 64. And, and then everything that happened out of that, that betrayal in a lot of ways. I mean, and then, of course, when I came up pregnant, it was my fault 
you know, obviously I wasn't a nice girl. Mm-hmm. He turned into somebody I did not recognize. And how, and I had to move on. I had to live on. But you have to let go of who you were. And that is a death in itself, you know. Uh, and um, and then he just died. Mm. He just uh, died uh, just after Christmas, my daughter's father. Mm-hmm. And that is another death. I went to his uh, memorial because my daughter is in Dubai. And uh, she said, Mom, I know you might not want to do this, but would you go? And I said, of course I would. You know, of course I'd go. And uh, in going, well, first of all, fast uh, rewind, I went to see him with my daughter and granddaughter in hospice before he died. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at him, and I realized that I did not know the man, the 60-some-year-old man who was ranting and raving in that bed. I knew the boy. Mm-hmm. And then I, and I thought more about, well, what happened to the girl, myself? Mm-hmm. What happens to her? And I think that we can all agree that uh, every time you see a grandchild and you go back and you see that grandchild again, there's a new person there. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've never lived that close to my daughter and granddaughter. So every time I'd see my granddaughter, she'd be somebody else. Right. And they go on in time. You know, we all go on in time. So thus the resurrection. Uh, and the person that I have arrived to be that I really I really love, I'm proud of, I respect, that is hopefully the crowning jewel of this performance. Hmm. It's who I, who I present myself as at the end of the evening, you know, mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. who I have grown up to be. Ah. And it's back to women's lives and works. How do we bury dead dreams, you know, so that we can go on? How do we bury our dead and still go on? I mean, I have this running joke, which uh, I I try out on people. I'll just say, well, you know, it's dying time. Hmm. It's dying time in America. It's dying time in my life. And people are like, oh, that's so morbid. But it's the I'm 64. And uh, and I have become a part of that group, as my mother used to describe, the group that's uh, that's coming from the cemetery, just having buried someone, and uh, arrive at the house to find that someone else has died, mm-hmm. and we must go back to the to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those wailing women now. You know, when I was a child, uh, you know, I, I heard about it because we lived very openly, but it it didn't affect me the same way because youth. You're so resilient, and death doesn't make any sense yet, you know. And um, now it's like to have buried my mother and father. They're both gone, you mm-hmm. know. Um, to now to have married my daughter's father, you know, to uh, my uh, – I, I, I buried – well, I didn't bury him, but I watched him. He died and, and left me the love of my life, the man that I think – pulled all of my womanism and my sexuality and my my sensuality together my my witcher my craft my witch's craft you know he was he loved my food we used to have such a lovely time together and i with him i had arrived at this place where i don't have to be married this is enough mm-hmm. this is enough this man's love this man's affection and he was mexican you know, he was Mexican with no papers, mm-hmm. you know, and then he died of bone cancer last mm. January. 
and, uh, like last year? Uh, yes. None oh. of us thought. Well, he died in San Diego. Hmm. But uh, all of a sudden, immigration was immigration was was uh, lying next to me in my bed, the whole plight of it. And I think he died of really a broken heart and a broken spirit because hmm. he was such a good man, so sweet and elegant. And uh, But he had lived in this country for 25 years with no status. Hmm. And he had raised a daughter, a very fabulous daughter, poet, Mm-hmm. And he was so proud, and uh, and he was the man that came for me and said, "Look, you know, are we gonna make this something? You know, <laughs> you, know I, I, you know, I need to know what your intentions are." It was just so fabulous, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, because uh, he said, "Cause I'm ready to go home now." This was a year or so before he died. Mm-hmm. He said, "You know, my kid's gonna be okay. Uh, I can't live in this country like this anymore." And then I was teaching at the Art Institute about. Uh, Five, six months ago, and a young uh, Mexican woman said, you know, I was telling them a story, a story somewhat like I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, studies have shown that Mexican men, they die 20 years before their time. Mm-hmm. The ones who come here and try to try to make it right, and they work harder than, my friend used to say, you know, Mexican people are maligned. He said, but, you know, we work harder than anybody. We work harder than the Bolivians. We work harder than the Colombians. We work harder than the Salvadorians. We work We work because we like working, and it all makes sense being here. Because other than that, he says, nobody wants to be in America, you know. There's just no money in our own country. And, uh, and he loved Mexico. He taught me so much about the art, the culture of Mexico, and he would dream about us going there and hanging out and mm-hmm. uh and he told me that I was his Khalifa. Oh, nice. Yeah, he talked about the, the black Amazons in Mexico, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then he died, boom. Mm. Like, it was, it was, it caught everybody off guard. And oh. so I've had to, then, then, then I've got Aretha. I put on Aretha's song, you mm-hmm. know. I can't help it now that he's gone. I've got my own life. I've got to live on. You know, and again, the resurrection. Who is that woman now? You know, mm-hmm. um, going to my daughter's father's memorial after the big celebration in San Francisco, and I'm the the, the mayor's artist of the yeah. year. And mm-hmm. I go to this memorial service, and these people are like, now who are you again? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I really felt like a, oh, my. Like a ghost. I just felt like a ghost. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's. You know, you know when you're talking about, um, you know, these different selves and, and you know and, and and dying, you know, to these different um, yous, you know, when that is time to move or step into another room. And I was just thinking about Ruth Brown, uh, the great artist, who talked about um, when she was, you know, sort of getting up there in age that she was in God's waiting room. Wow. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I thought about that. And and then I was wondering, as you were talking about, um, you know, your grandchildren, your granddaughter, and how every time you see her, she's another person because you don't see her, that process of her getting older and growing. Mm-hmm. You just see her at these different stages. And I was wondering, um, uh, how many selves have you had to let go, and can you ever retrieve, like, can you, like, are they sort of like, you know how when you delete things, uh-huh. sometimes it says, 
gone forever, but then we know there's no such thing as that for real yeah. um, online. But but it says that, so it means that I can't access it anymore. But when you when you move on, are you really moving on? Is the door like shut, locked, gone? Like it's never you can't, or can you actually go back and get some of those persons? just in case you weren't really finished with her. <laughs> well, therein lies the performance material for this show. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I don't know. I am a, I'm exploring and I am uh, uh, perusing to see. You know, I mm-hmm. think uh, I heard a poet say, uh, she said, when you are downhearted and you're having a, terrible day, remember when you were five. Try to revisit being five Mm -hmm. and how simple the world is, uh, supposedly. Now, I've lived and the work I've done has shown that a lot of five-year-old children are are already looking at you with ancient eyes. So, but uh, largely I think what she meant was that before life hurt, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, I like nine in the show I am uh, gathering stories of nine-year-old, when we were nine. As a nine-year-old girl, I I read another article in Moore magazine, and I invite you to send me a story that something happened to you at nine as well. Okay. And uh, uh, this writer is talking about um, her love of horses and how she had always dreamed that she would go to Uruguay and learn to ride uh, this um, in a certain Spanish style. And she said, for some reason, it all came together for her at nine, hmm. that she knew that's what she wanted to do. And uh, as she has studied the lives of other women and have gathered stories about being nine, uh, she's come to this conclusion that at nine, you're fully formed. Hmm. You know, I mean, you you know, you have your opinion, you have your your psychic spiritual energy, and I remember with my dad, I just remember telling my father I was going to be a great ballerina, mm-hmm. and I was going to have a pink jet, and I was going to uh, live in Russia, and I, you know, and uh, and I can remember just being so clear about it all, mm-hmm. and I remember my father, he listened to me, he didn't tell me it wasn't going to happen. He said, is that right? And I said, yeah, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And and my, my dad would just be so engrossed, I think, in me. It's like, well, who is this? You know what I mean? And, and I was just so basking in my father's eyes. I was so sure of my nine-year-old self mm-hmm. and where I was going. And, now, of course, life knocks you over. And if you're not tended to and taken care of, if there's enough money to to uh, sort of protect you from the vestiges of the their world, of course, by the time nine more years, you're 18, and at 18, I had a two-year-old daughter. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm gathering these stories, and uh, uh, I'm working to to. Uh, 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 Coagulate these stories so that every night I'll read a different one. Oh, seriously? Yeah, in the in the performance. Oh, so we have to come to all your performances to get it all. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I, goodness! Oh, it's wonderful, and I've gathered some stories by 
highly profiled people from my yoga class, hmm. architects, uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, surgeons, um, hmm. and there's this, and there are these stories that largely are secrets. Mm-hmm. You see, mm-hmm. they're you know things that have happened to people that they never spoke about, ah. which for me again is the very very um, heart of the Medea project. Yeah, is that it is where we have to lay it down, lay it down. It's not your business anymore. It's somebody else's dirty garbage. Mm, so you mm-hmm. can move on, you know, um, to answer your question about can we retrieve certain things. I think certain things we don't want to. I think that they, we're so angry. We get mm-hmm. so angry uh, at the world that we will, we will, we're like a mad woman in a dank, dark place who sits there tearing apart the tearing apart the fabric of her life because it feels real you know so much stuff will have happened that mm-hmm. it feels real that this is where i live this is who i am get over it mm-hmm. you know and uh and the only person that we're hurting is ourselves mm-hmm. and in my family there's uh several women that i have that their lives were like that with alcohol with with um, uh, just this, this, this inability to face the future. So uh, one of my relatives just kind of lives in this rarefied, wide-eyed air of uh, make-believe, and she's like in her late 60s too. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and growing up I saw these women, and there was something in me that said, no, I'm not going out like that. I'm not, I'd rather, I would rather be the first one to let the world know that this happened to me. Mm-hmm. It just hurt me because I learned early that I wasn't alone. We're back to the nine-year-old stories. There are women, nobody's ever asked them anything about anything, mm-hmm. you know. And then here comes Rodessa Jones, a big, broad smile, uh, talking about my work. And then in light of the award ceremony, a lot of people who thought they knew me had no idea about the work I did. So, Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, there's a oh. lot of people that, you know, I just... You're you know, famous. I don't know how anyone could not know. Well, you know, I see huh. um, amongst my people, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're such a celebrity. I'm like, you know, like a, in a great way, you know? Yeah, and uh, I had a I had a sister tell me, it was about three years ago at a Christmas party um, uh, at um, Renee Walker's house, my um, one of my costume designers, and mm-hmm. this lady just found me and, and kind of cornered me and thanked me for never leaving, mm-hmm. never leaving uh, us. She said, thank you for never leaving us. For, you could have gone to Hollywood, she mm-hmm. said. You're pretty enough to be this. You're pretty enough to be that. But you decided to stay here and be with us, work with us, which was so moving. It was mm-hmm. very profound. I'm like, oh, my God, show me the door. I'd still like to drive for Hollywood. <laughs> But the work has been so rich. Mm-hmm. I work with women. Uh, my um, the gift of uh, my own production company, Idris Akamore, where I can make my work mm-hmm. it belongs to me. You know, I mean, I tried offhandedly to 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 do the pilot season in Los Angeles and all this kind of stuff, but no, I just uh, you know, it's it wasn't as interesting as my own story and the stories of women around me. You know, mm-hmm. the stories that nobody was telling or talking about. And uh, the rewards have been nice, you know, that, uh, uh, and it's, it's meaningful work, you know. 
I mean, I would love to. I would love to be driving a Duesenberg now. I mean, that's one of my, you know, and having a beautiful house in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and maybe something it won't be as big and lavish as my fantasies. But at any rate, I, I, that's probably coming as well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if I was to drop in the spot that I've done some good work, and even as you say, you're famous, you know, it's uh, for whatever that means. I uh, I have people at my gym, and they'll say, well, uh, do you do autographs? And I say, well, not really. I said, you know, I don't really do autographs. And I, I do autographs for young people who might think they know me, but... Mm-hmm. And this lady was a little missed. She walked off, just a little missed that I would <laughs> sign the newspaper article. And it was just like, you know, it just kind of caught me off guard. Like, no, you know, I'm not I'm not going to burden that either, that, oh, look at me. But then again, the other side of it is that reading the AARP magazine, it says, you know, start collecting signatures uh, from people before they're famous. So mm-hmm. maybe I didn't do the lady a service to have, maybe saying, no, I didn't, I didn't help her investment future investments or whatever, but, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was thinking about, uh, I've got a couple of things I was writing as you were talking and um, wrote down some words like audacity and authenticity and uh, inheritance and legacy and then choices. Um, and then I was looking at just juxtaposing the Medea Project Theater for Incarcerated Women and then Medea, the character, the, you know, that woman was locked up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and um, and then you know through through the work that you do with your company, uh, the Madea Project, which is um, one of the programs of you know Culture Odyssey, mm-hmm. um, you free you free people, and you do it through myth making and you know sort of remaking or re you know sort of retelling these stories that are a part of our our psyche as as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to stamp out shame and stigma, mm-hmm. you know, because it is, uh, any way you look at it, uh, if you can get up off the floor and wash your wounds, you're standing, mm. and it's a great life, you know, it's a, and I'm not talking in terms of how many dresses you own or or how even how, how rich the man is that you have or the woman is that you have, but that you've, you've lived to look back at the journey. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, I think for younger people, they need that. They need somebody to say, look, you know, you'll get through this. You know, I mean, it's uh, Sean Reynolds who, um, um, she was one of the first people to utter to me, uh, you know, when my mom died. She says, well, you know, you cry because there's, there's nothing else to do. Then you got to stop crying, and then what are you going to do? And uh, I think that uh, that's in part is what I'm saying. And then I saw this group in L.A. many years ago, a woman's group, and they had this wonderful moment in the show. It was a physical sound and movement thing, but it was like, if I fall, will you catch me? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's been very much a part of my own work, you know, trying to retrieve sisters who are worth saving, you know, and also they need to know that they have a right to a life, that a life is not for special people. All mm-hmm. of us came here with reason, you know, with mm-hmm. reason and intention, you know. Um, sometimes for, you know, um, uh, sometimes for maybe five years, sometimes for 100 years. I have uh, 
very, very uh, wealthy uh, friends who are, were hippies with me, and we all read Edgar Casey and, uh, and uh, you know, we all studied Seth, and we, we Grajeef, and, and uh, they, they grew up to um, either marry into lots of money or make lots of money, and now they're saying they're going to live to be one, 200 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, which I don't necessarily know if I want to be around that long because I like physically being able to move about, and um, and we don't really we don't know what to do with the aged and the elderly in our culture, and that 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 unsettles me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I want to be around to to have to face that stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was wondering. Um, a couple of more questions. I was just remembering how wonderful you were as curator of the San Francisco International Arts Festival. Um, what year was that? And you just had all this great art from the Pan African diaspora. Oh, 2005. Okay, that was a wonderful, was wonderful showcase. Show. And mm-hmm. God bless Andrew Wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andrew's he wonderful. Sent me. He mm-hmm. sent me to to Bali to to Mali and yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, and you talk about, you know, you know, the young people and the older people and yeah, and the art and just the landscape and the people that you met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, people make up everything, mm-hmm. you know. If the people aren't there, it doesn't <laughs> matter matter. I mean, I I found this out for true about Hawaii. Mm. Hawaii is pretty. But uh, there's areas of it that's just been manicured to death, mm. and uh, and the people can be a tad soulless, you know. And uh, and this was on my own account, and it was very disappointing to me, you mm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, or race matters where people don't want to be Hawaiian people. Some of them don't want to be confused with being black, and that mm-hmm. hit hit me. That kind of hit me hard when I was I was there for the first time, wandering around that paradise, and mm-hmm. came upon a couple of instances where uh, some white person, ticket taker, gatekeeper, assumed that I was with whomever was in front of me or whatever, and just watching the brown people and their response to no, she's no, no, I'm Hawaiian. I remember one one woman and her daughter, we're Hawaiian, and uh, which meant we're not black. I go to Jamaica, mm-hmm. and I still can find pockets of uh, musical humanity, and uh, the people are being kind of starved out uh, of, of their freedoms and that everything is being sold by the government. But, you know, God bless the music of Marley and uh, reggae and people that look like me and when they got a moment to be free, you know, mm-hmm. when they can come up out of their strife and stress, it's such a lovely place to be, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, with that backdrop of the ocean and all that stuff going on, you know. Of course, yeah, as a man, you have to say, look, I, I'm not the one. I'm not in the market for a Jamaican boyfriend. Or did that a long time ago, and excuse me, coming through. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> largely, uh, it's wonderful. A glass of rum, a hit of ganja in the ocean. Uh, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. Um, you know, these places that don't want to honor their African heritage. Um, I mean, you know, Hawaii. You know, I mean, yeah. their their last queen was black, straight up. I mean, the sister looks like a sister. Yeah. <laughs> and then you think about Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're all over Mexico, and the last governor was black. Mm-hmm. So it's like, 
I mean, you know, like we should be uniting, not separating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so much. Uh, uh, one of the women in the Medea Project, Angie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was, Angie. One of the reasons I fell in love with Angie was that she came. She came into the process when when the uh, Rockefeller Foundation had funded Cultural Odyssey to go into the jails mm. and explore uh, race, culture, and religion. Mm. And uh, so here's this little white girl from Idaho who, one, can say, the first black person I met, I was 12 years old when I first met a black person. Mm. And then the whole question of if there was a pill to take that would make you any other race, would black be a choice? And she said, well, only if I could take it for a, a shorter period of time. And, of course, people are like, well, you know, people are getting very upset. You know, later for you and I. And I said, no, 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 let it finish. She said, she said, look around you. The world is so hard on black people. She said black people can dance, black people cook, black people are funny. It's a lot of fun, but the, but the world can be so hard on people of African descent, I think is what she meant. Mm-hmm. And here she was, a little blonde girl from Idaho, you know, and um, – and I just thought it was an incredibly astute observation to make, you know, mm-hmm. that you're absolutely right. So wherever I go, I still try to work to to create a bond with all of us, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. with, with everybody. Um, last night on the plane coming home, mm-hmm. I'm talking to a gentleman who was from um, White Man. I think he was, oh, he was from Marin. Oh, okay. He had just come back with his son who was, uh, uh, he had taken his son to visit uh Brown and another college there, and we're chatting it up in the back. I think he just really enjoyed me being so open and funny, you know, because by the time he got back there, I was looking at the two bathrooms, and they, it seemed like people had been in the bathrooms forever. He said, well, I'm just watching the doors, and he thought that was hysterically funny. <laughs> and we start talking, uh, up comes this white lady, and uh, he, uh, uh, I said to her, I said, well, you know, I'm watching the doors, and he's, and we're celebrating our children and our parenting. And she looked at me and she said, well, I was, I, I, when I walked back, I saw you. I thought you'd be back here cooking us something good to eat. What? Yes. I see. I'm not quick enough then. It's like, huh? He looked at her like, what are you talking about? And she thought she was being, uh, she thought she was being a part of the conversation. You know, uh, if I had been as quick as my friend Sean, had cussed out and called her several different kinds of bees and, uh, you know, and, uh, and and invite her to my backside, she probably would have went running back to her seat, crying and saying that why are black people so hostile? You know, it's <laughs> 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 you know? so a question when you're in the wrong when mm-hmm. when when some white folks come up and get off your face and they're totally off off the chain. You tell them, then you are hostile. But it was just like was stunned. I was stunned. Like what? Mm-hmm. And she totally meant it. Mm-hmm. And she thought she was paying me some compliment. I think. You know, I mean, it was just really odd. <laughs> no. That's very odd. Yeah, and uh, and at the same time, the big, uh, the big, big white, red, red uh, stewardess came back, and she, she's, and I, and the guy's saying, "We've been waiting for bathrooms," and she says, "I don't think there's anybody in this one." And he and I had been back, been back there talking, and apparently, whoever left had not like uh, left the door open or. Mm. You know, and it was just like more uh, irresponsibility and inhumanity and a lack of connection with each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and here's this lady standing there, you know, uh, hoping I'm gonna, hoping that I'm gonna entertain her now. And I just, the guy said, no, you go first. He said to me, and I just went right into the bathroom and back to my seat. It was like, you know, just, uh, just this, this kind of ignorance. It's just like ignorance, boldness, you know, and um, uh, you know, at the same time, it's, it's, it, all you can do is hope that somebody will believe her of some of that stupidity, you know. It's like, um, but it but it wasn't me last night. I was just like, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. yeah, well, hopefully she will see your picture in a newspaper mm-hmm. and come to see the resurrection of she and like, oh, my God. <laughs> now, well, I'm reaching out to everybody. I want everybody who thinks they know me to please come out, you know, uh, and uh and and see my latest work, mm-hmm. and also um, you know it's a uh, time and as long as it has been, mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh, just um, I, I wonder sometimes, Rodessa, my work can be so prophetic. What am I really saying? Am I saying <laughs> bye? <laughs> oh heck no, uh-uh. no, you're not saying goodbye. <laughs> no, uh-uh, not at all. I remember that. Um, the cabaret style um, piece you did, where it was all red and was about hot flashes. That was oh so... yes, oh yeah, that was that's one of my favorite pieces in the whole world. <laughs> mm. That was really fun, and uh, and I want to mention, um, I know you brought your crown back from South Africa, and uh, Mary McCabe's birthday just passed on the fourth, which was yesterday. And that's my baby sister's birthday. Oh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah she would have been eighty-one. Oh, my God, what a goddess, you know, mm-hmm. what a goddess. I mean, it's like an whole idea to die in the midst of performance. Mm-hmm. What a way to go. You oh, know, yeah. Um, her, her musician says she walked off stage, mm-hmm. and she wasn't re- it wasn't time. They hadn't gotten through all the songs, but she kind of walked off stage and apparently collapsed. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and, but what a way to go with the audience still calling and screaming for you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that 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 sound following you in your ascension. Mm. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, that's you know, and it, 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 when I hear that story from people, it's just amazing. As well as getting my first crown in the marketplace, and mm-hmm. and you know, me and I'm, I'm curious, George. You know, so I'm looking at all these beautiful <laughs> African women in these gorgeous, strange hats, these headpieces. And I'm asking, what what's going on? What is this? Mm-hmm. And they told me, they said, Mama Africa has ascended. And, uh, and of course, I love the idea that uh, Mary Makeba was Mother Africa. That was her name with everybody. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, you must have one. And so they gave me my first one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and that's, my, that's the one that I'm wearing on my Facebook with George, with uh, Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I saw Winnie Mandela mm-hmm. when I was in uh, Soweto uh, oh. two, uh, two or three trips back. Mm-hmm. That was another queen. Yes, so, she is. Yeah, I asked this, uh, my guide was taking me to the radio station for, television station in Soweto for an interview. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I said, I know Winnie Mandela has a, a tea house around here. And he said, oh, yes. I said, you think we'll see her? He said, well, you never know. So we're walking down to get some coffee before the interview, and uh, there she is mm. in this huge black BMW, mm-hmm. huge car. And there's two very large, handsome black men 
outside the car, and she's sitting in the back seat on her cell phone, and uh, but just light, you know, the light is just uh, emanating from her. It was amazing. Mm. And uh, I just stood there, and she looked up and looked at me, and I looked at her, and I just, like, saluted her, and mm. she nodded her head, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to my my late sister-in-law, Linda, I said, well, you know, I still think, how do you salute a queen? Mm. You know, how do you, how, what do you say when it's, a, when it's just, I mean, she's still so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just beautiful. But thank you for reminding me of these moments because i got to pull up that, that piece because I like to just call upon Winnie Mandela. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And so my last last question and comment is if you could um uh talk about uh the poetry of your life and and how art um you know sort of keeps us human. Mm. Well, I think it all begins with love. Mhm. And Love is this love is its own reward. You know, it's uh if you love the universe will love you back. Now don't be blindly and stupidly giving over all of your goods to whomever comes along, but keep an open heart and an open mind and at the same time as my brother Bill Bill T. Jones uh, often um reminds me of the world of ideas. What can you do with love? What What is another way to approach love? You know, and that's what we artists are privy to. Taking ideas and wrapping them around old forms, you know, and, and, and the idea of love, it softens everybody. It keeps us all human, you know. Um, and I think woman as well. Uh, my trainer, Charles, who is from Marseille, Charles told me years ago, I haven't seen him in a while. He said, he said, I never can understand why a man would want to lay his hands on a woman in an abusive, violent way because he said, look at a woman. A woman is shaped like a heart. Hmm. You know, he mm-hmm. said that, that on some, some level you look at the body of a woman versus the body of a man. And it's right down to our sexual center. It doesn't hang out. You know, it's it's uh, it's almost as though the uh, the line drawing ends there in the heart. Hmm. And he says that women are all shaped like hearts. Wow. And uh, I try to, as an artist, I try to re-enter old conversations, old ideas, but with the idea of pulling in uh, a, another way of looking at it. And I've been lucky that people will go with me. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because people want to believe in something. You know, I, right now I'm struggling with costume because I feel like I've got to be fabulous. Mm, of course, yes. People will come to see Rodessa be fabulous. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, <laughs> or naked, which I'm not doing anymore, but I used to be gloriously naked back in the back in the early days, you know, ferociously <laughs> naked, you know, when I did uh, my early stuff. I was an artist's model. Mm-hmm. And I remember an, uh, the art teacher at San Jose State saying to his group when I was very young, I was modeling, he said, if you can't draw this body, you should put down your pencils and your papers and your paints. <laughs> this body this body is a, a direct descendant 
of God and all of God's mercy and glory and beauty. And I remember that thinking. I was all embarrassed, like, oh, my God. <laughs> but it, but um, it, it was a blessing for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And my mother used to say, uh, on a note just about this art making, my mother said when she finally saw a piece of my performance, and I was at Berkeley, and my mother had often looked at me, but then as mothers and daughters and sons, my brother Bill is such a bright light, you know, my mother had not, my mother sort of knew I was doing something over there, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, she came to see, I did a, hmm. I did a performance for um, sex and gender, sex, uh, culture and gender at Berkeley. I think it was, uh, I can't remember, was it, uh, Opal or Disa was oh. one of her classes, uh-huh. and my mom came back. So I did a piece about generations, the four generations of women in my family, the blue stories. Mm. And I did it. My mother was there in the audience, and she and I was very nervous because I I'm always spilling, I'm always spilling family secrets and opening closets and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's not coming back. Oh my, she's mad. Blah 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 blah. But she finally came back, and everybody had gone, and I was um, putting my make makeup away. And she came back, and she had to. She stood there in the doorway, and I remember her wonderful hands. She she had these amazingly beautiful hands, and they were so powerful. She just stood there and looked at me, and she said, "Now I know what you do. Mm-hmm. You tell your story as a way to lift the people up." And uh, that was my mother's blessing, and I passed that on. That, in the name of art, and uh, saving the the human family, I think it's about sharing stories. I tell you my story. I'll tell you my story if you can tell me yours. And, mm-hmm. You know, and once you hear somebody's story, you definitely can't help but see them differently. So that's uh, what I do in the name of saving the the tribe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for all that you do. And, gosh, the resurrection of she is going to be so phenomenal. Um, March 28th through April 7th, and I was looking at the dates, and um, it passes through the season of, um, of I'm trying to think, um, I'm trying to think, uh, what's it called, um, the season of peace, you know, that starts mm-hmm. in January and it goes through Martin King's uh, assassination and it travels through Gandhi's life, Kennedy's life, mm-hmm. Malcolm's life, and mm-hmm. uh, and then so it's like three days past it. And from what you say, we we definitely need to catch you more than once, so yeah. people shouldn't wait till the last week. And, you know, the last days of the last week, because you'd probably be selling out because Bravo's not huge. <laughs> and also, you know, what happens to me all the time is somebody will say, you know, I, I saw that show and I, I really wanted to come back again. Or I wanted to ask you, like, what you meant, you know. And uh, and depending on how I feel or how the, the audience feels, I may have a uh, a few talkbacks. Oh, so, wow, that'd be uh, so great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you so there's the element of 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 surprise there too. I mean, we we might get more than just sitting in the audience. We'll be able to like talk to you and afterwards see you walk out of the dressing room and get your autograph and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those things may very well happen. And uh, at the same time, the part of the resurrection is that I really want to be able to say no. 
Right. Yes, you know, of course. It's like, good night. Uh, like Captain Hepburn <laughs> said, some lady asked for an autograph. Captain Hepburn, who's one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Captain Hepburn, uh, this woman said, uh, Captain Hepburn said, oh, no, 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 I'm uh, no, I'm really tired. And this lady said, well, we made you who you are. And she said, like, hell, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll end on that note. <laughs> okay, thank you, Rodessa. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. I look forward to seeing you um, in the resurrection of she. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a great evening. Um, there will be. Everything you do is great. Thank you. <laughs> All right. You take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.